0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the Scriptures. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 23. Isaiah 23 today, continuing in our survey of this book. The plan to teach 66 chapters in 66 weeks followed by 52 weeks of Jeremiah. That's the plan, to do Isaiah and Jeremiah back-to-back, Lord willing, and rapture pending. It's been a couple of weeks now, actually. We had a missionary report last week. Appreciate Fassel and Kerry being with us and praying for them. I believe, uh, I didn't hear otherwise, Friday was the day he takes the oath. So, as of now, uh, Fassel John is an American citizen. And that was a long time coming, and we were very thankful to be praying for that and to uh, watch that process unfold. All right, so it's been a couple of weeks, but we are now ready for Isaiah chapter 23, the oracle concerning Tyre. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to give each believer priest the opportunity to confess any sin that needs to be dealt with and to humble your heart under the authority of the word of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, we recognize that not one of us has earned or deserved this. Today itself is a gift of your grace, Father. Who are we? And yet, Father, you have given us this new day in your grace. You've presented before us the opportunity to study, to show ourselves approved, and we thank you for these grace provisions. We redeem them for your good pleasure, for the glory of your Son. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our time together. Father, hedge us about, protect us, hinder anyone from coming in here to bring us to harm or stop what we're doing. Father, hedge us about and protect us. And most of all, Father, open the eyes of our understanding. Give us the ears to hear. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 23. We have Isaiah's 10th oracle. Isaiah's 10th oracle. There's actually one more to go, but this is uh, that's in a later chapter. But there have been 10 in this section, starting with the oracle concerning Babylon, way back in chapter 13. And we've been on a bit of a survey in these recent chapters, from chapter 13 and 14, detailing Babylon, moving on to Moab and Philistia and all these other regions. This is Isaiah's 10th oracle, and it concludes this major section of the book, chapters 13 through 23. Starting next week, we're going to get into the apocalyptic portion of the book of Isaiah. Sometimes it's called Isaiah's little apocalypse, or Isaiah's revelation, chapter 24 through 27. And so we have that to look forward to between now and the end of the month of March. But we've got to cover chapter 23 today, the tenth and final oracle in, uh, in this section. And it, consider, and it concerns Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed, without house or harbor. It is reported to them from the land of Cyprus. Be silent, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon. Your messengers crossed the sea and were on many waters. The grain of the Nile, the harvest of the river, was her revenue, and she was the market of nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, or Sidon, for the sea speaks, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither travailed nor given birth. I have neither brought up young men nor reared virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report of Tyre. Pass over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coastlands. Is this your jubilant city, whose origin is from antiquity, whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places? All right, I'm going to stop there. We're going to handle those first seven verses as a unit, and then we'll move on, verses eight and following, who has planned this. And uh, we've got a total of 18 verses we're going to have to cover today, and uh, we want to get right to it, because there's a lot to cover. Of all the chapters we've had a hard time dealing with, I think... This this may be the worst of all. Chapter 13 was rough. Chapter 14 was rough. Talking about the five-eye wills of Satan. You realize when we do this chapter by chapter, Sunday by Sunday, you're not getting all the details. We're scratching the surface. We're giving a big-picture view and kind of setting the table for what will hopefully be deeper studies down the road to come back and spend spend a year in chapter 23, I think would be really a blessing. There's so much here. But first of all, Tyre and Sidon or Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were the leading cities of the Phoenicians. We're very familiar with Tyre and Sidon. They are spoken of repeatedly throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Jesus visited this region, as in fact, as a part of his uh, first Advent incarnation, part of his ministry as recorded in the Gospels. Tyre and Sidon were the leading cities of the Phoenicians. They had multiple cities, but these were the top two. Sidon was the mother. Tyre was the daughter. All right, although later on, Tyre would take preeminence because Tyre would be receiving refugees out of uh, Sidon uh, during several of Sidon's uh, destructions. Joshua 19, verses 28 and 29, as they were conquering the land, as they were giving the land grant and dividing up the territory, this should have been, these should have been Jewish cities, but Israel never conquered them. Israel left them in the hands of the Canaanites, even during Joshua's day. And... Uh, Grab these. We won't spend a lot of time on this. I'll show you some maps and pictures, and we'll, uh, we'll let it go from there. But in Joshua 19, verses 28 and 29, we see um, the territory of Asher. All right? This should be the, the happy tribe. Asher means happy. And uh, all the, uh, the fifth lot fell to the tribe of the sons of Asher, according to their families. And this was their territory, and it gets spelled out by clan within the families, we understand. And as a part of this, in tracking the borders, we read in verse 28 and 29, uh, Ebron and Rehob and Haman and Cana as far as great Sidon. All right, all these places that are mentioned, but Sidon specifically is mentioned as great. It was the greatest of all the cities that the tribe of Asher should have conquered in the days of Joshua, and they never did great Sidon and the border turned to Ramah to the fortified city of Tyre here's another adjective most of these towns aren't described but Sidon is described as great and Tyre is described as fortified the fortified city of Tyre then the border turned to Hosa, and it ended at the sea by the region of Akzib so there you go now you know exactly where it is I'll show you on a map here shortly But they never conquered it. And all the time when Israel was living in the land, they had Canaanites to their northwest. They had the coastal region, which should have been theirs, was still in Canaanite hands. And it limited their uh, uh, grace. It limited their provision. It limited the impact that they were able to have. They didn't have the the ports on the Mediterranean because you had uh, Phoenicians to the northwest and they had Philistines to the southwest. And the whole coast was was, uh, taken by Gentiles at that point of time. Jesus traveled through this region, and he spoke of this region. He even rebuked this region and used it as an illustration in his preaching. But in Matthew 11, 21 and 22, he highlights Tyre and Sidon specifically as being the unbelieving cities that are going to rise up and condemn a couple of Jewish cities. Matthew 11, verses 21 and 22. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, those were the two cities that Jesus spent most of his time with, see, uh, when he was operating uh, around the Sea of Galilee there. Chorazin and Bethsaida. Uh, woe to you Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. These Gentile cities could have been repented cities. They could have been glorifying Jesus Christ had the miracles been done in them that had been done in Corazin and Bethsaida. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And then the city that gets the biggest rebuke is the city of Capernaum, where Jesus lived, where he set up his, his headquarters. Capernaum gets contrasted with Sodom, and the example there. Even Sodom would have repented had the miracles Jesus did in Capernaum had they been done in, uh, in Sodom. So these are the leading cities of the Phoenicians. Final reference I'll make to them is here in Matthew 15 and verse 21. Jesus travels through this region and uh, is on a bit of a vacation, if you will, or a a, uh, retreat. Sometimes it's thought of as a a, uh, retreat. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, "Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David." And this is remarkable, particularly when you realize the hostility he was encountering in his Galilean ministry the hostility he was having in his own town. Even the fellow uh, Jews from Nazareth were trying to shove him off a cliff and they said, you know, they were rejecting him. Is this not the carpenter's son and so forth? He goes out to the region of the Philistine cities of Tyre and Sidon, and here comes a Canaanite woman who calls him by his royal title, Son of David. How does this girl have a perspective for Scripture, a perspective for prophecy to understand the blessings of what the Son of David is all about? But clearly she does. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Wouldn't it be a blessing if we could encounter more and more believers that had a frame of reference for the Messiah title of Jesus Christ and his connection with the throne uh, uh, or the title son of David. But there it is, all right? They're uh, frequently featured in the Hebrew prophets, most notably Ezekiel. I think most of the prophets do make mention of Tyre, at least Tyre, and many of them Tyre and Sidon together. In fact, there's a bulk of Ezekiel in chapter 26, 27, 28, 29. There's a four-chapter chunk of Ezekiel during the captivity whereby we have some deep, deep messages pertaining to uh, to Tyre specifically. And I believe if you're going to do an exhaustive study here on uh, Isaiah chapter 23... Uh, there's just no way you can study Isaiah 23 without also studying in tandem Ezekiel 26 through 29. You've got to understand those passages together. God gave multiple witnesses to this important truth, all right? And so we want to make a synthesis of uh, Isaiah 23 with Ezekiel 26, 27, 28, and 29. None of that we can do this morning, (laughs) all right? Remember, we're moving on to chapter 24 next week. So you got this week, all right? We've got this hour, unless I keep it to midnight. We, uh, there's a lot of stuff we just can't get into here this morning. We will take a short glimpse at chapter 28 in, uh, in just a little bit. Now, as far as these names of these towns, these towns are typically often sometimes also people, and that's the case for Sidon, certainly. Not entirely clear what, how Tyre received its name. But uh, Sidon was the firstborn son of Canaan. Remember, Canaan was the son of Ham when Ham, Shem, and Japheth got, uh, disembarked the ark. And they, uh, they started to populate the world, and they started to give birth to their sons and grandsons, and the population of the world started to grow after the flood of Noah. And uh, Canaan was the one that was cursed, as Canaan was the wicked uh, line under Ham that was pursuing all the darkness and ugliness that we find and read about in the book of Genesis. Sidon was the firstborn son of Canaan, Genesis 10:15, And this connection is specifically referenced in this oracle. Notice in, in verse 11 here. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has made the kingdoms tremble. The Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish its strongholds. The judgment of Isaiah 23 goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. Even earlier than that, it goes back to Genesis chapter 9 when uh, Ham violates his father and when the ugliness of, of that circumstance takes place and Noah wakes up from his drunkenness and pronounces the curse upon Canaan. All right. And so we see it here. Sidon was the firstborn son of Canaan. So of all the nations that were destroyed, the Jebusites and the Amorites and and all the nations that were destroyed, Sodom and Gomorrah and all the wrath of God, when, when he brings Israel out of Egypt and he takes them to the land of Canaan and the land of Canaan gets renamed, all right? We don't call it the land of Canaan anymore, do we? Well, God removed them from the land and the final remnants of the Canaanites are right here. Tyre and Sidon lasted longer than any other Canaanite people. There were even Canaanites still in the land by the time of Jesus Christ, like the lady we just saw, the the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman that came to uh, beg for mercy from Christ, the son of David. The Phoenicians serve as a graphic illustration of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. I hope we can glean this, and I don't want to spend the whole hour on this, but I could preach on this for a month and longer. Genesis chapter 12 says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. All right? This is the unconditional covenant. Yahweh Elohim makes these promises to Abraham. Abraham. And I, it just breaks my heart how people are ignoring this, or they say, well, that's expired. How does an eternal covenant expire? All right. Or, well, it, it no longer applies because the church has replaced Israel. How dare you? All right. Nothing replaces Israel. Israel has eternal promises, they never expire. They cannot throw them away if they wanted to. So Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. I tremble at the fact that my nation is about to form an alliance or come to an agreement with Persia. And we're going to side with the enemies of Israel. And I believe that we will set our nation up for divine discipline every time we side with Israel's enemies. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And so we have Phoenicia, which sets this great example through uh, two stories. And I'm going to just have to, in the interest of time, maybe just give you, assign this to you as homework. But there's a great character named Hiram. All right, Hiram. Hiram of Tyre. We almost have a Hiram. We've got Iran, right? Similar name. Hiram of Tyre was a great ally for David and Solomon. And he blessed David. He loved David. And for the sake of David, he blessed Solomon. And we read about this in, in 1 Kings chapter 5, when it comes time to build the temple. Where would they get the lumber? Where would they get the, the cedar, the material they needed to build the temple? It was a gift to Israel from the king of Tyre. And uh, Tyre is going to be blessed because of the association with Israel, the blessings that they bestowed upon the house of David. And don't ever overlook the impact in human history for those nations that have blessed the Jewish people. Why has the United States of America been blessed for 200 years? We have been a place of refuge for the Jewish people. They have been safe, they have been secure, they have been protected they have been free to raise their families and build their synagogues and conduct their businesses. And they have not had the official governmental policy of pogroms or affliction or, or, or persecution. They haven't had to flee America under persecution like they've fled from everywhere else they've ever been. First Kings 5 and verse 1, Now Hiram king of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father for Hiram had always been a friend of David. There's there's a blessing. How would you like to be known as the friend of David? David was the man after God's own heart. That's that's a high praise right there. He's a Gentile. He's a Canaanite. All right? So that's on the positive side. Then there's the negative side. A couple hundred years later, and Tyre no longer has believers for political leaders. They have a couple of coups. They have a couple of assassinations. A whole, new, uh, a whole new dynasty comes to the throne over the Phoenicians in Tyre, and you end up with a Jezebel. You end up with a, a traitor who becomes a king by the name of Ethbaal, the same Baal that, that uh, Elijah had to, uh, had to fight against, the prophets of Baal. Here's Ethbaal the king, and Ethbaal the king has a daughter named Jezebel. And so Phoenicia becomes a curse to the Jewish people. King Ethbaal's daughter Jezebel is given to King Ahab of Israel. And now instead of blessing the Jewish people, the Phoenicians become the source of idolatry. They become the source of wickedness. They become the source of demonism. And all all the the wickedness that would afflict the northern kingdom of Israel under Ahab and Jezebel. This is uh, detailed for us in 1 Kings chapter 16. Verses 31 through 34. Here's another issue that we would have to stop and take two or three hours to detail. The whole doctrine related to Jezebel. That even takes you into Revelation with uh, the prophetess there who called herself Jezebel. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, as if he was not already a big enough idolater. He had to import additional idolatry. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshiped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab becomes the champion idolater of all the kings of Israel. And he does so as he marries Jezebel. He marries the Phoenician daughter of the Phoenician king. And so we have both sides of the equation. We have a Phoenician king who blesses Israel and his nation is blessed. What was the golden age of of Phoenician colonization? What was the golden age when when Phoenician ships were sailing the Mediterranean or when the Phoenicians circumnavigated Africa, when the Phoenicians established colonies far and wide? The golden age followed their blessing of the house of David. When was the beginning of the downfall of the Phoenician colonies, the Phoenician trading empire? When did that Phoenician uh, culture begin to collapse and come under God's judgment following the idolatry of Ethbaal and the... Jezebel influence and in poisoning the uh, the Jewish people, the Northern Kingdom of Israel. All right, I don't find that coincidental at all with respect to those things. Likewise, uh, Josephus in his Antiquities. If you read Josephus in his Antiquities, there's a reference to this as well. Ahab, the king of Israel, dwelt in Samaria and held the government for twenty-two years making no alteration in the conduct of the kings that were his predecessors, but only in such things as were of his own invention for the worse, and in his most gross wickedness. <laughs> what is the president known for after he leaves office? All right? That in his own invention, his own creativity for wickedness, he developed new new ways to, to uh, defy God. He imitated them in their wicked courses and in the injurious behavior toward God, and more especially, he imitated the transgression of Jeroboam, for he worshipped the heifers that he had made, and he contrived other absurd objects of worship besides those heifers. He also took to wife the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Tyrians and Sidonians, and there's the reference specifically to Tyre with Sidon. The reference in first kings only mentioned that Ethbaal was the king of the Sidonians. In any event, whose name was Jezebel, of whom he learned to worship her own gods. As far as that goes. If you want more on that, I encourage you to read Josephus. Okay? Fertility cults are popular. Fertility cults uh, get popular because the religious practices involve a lot of sex, involve a lot of fertility rituals. All right, And it's basically sanctified prostitution is what it comes down to. And uh, the ugliness of that. So we have the Phoenicians. Now we have the content of the message. Verses 1 through 7. I love the imperatives here. Take the time to spell out the imperatives. Those are the commands. And he tells them, wail. And then he says, be silent. (laughs) Well, which is it? All right. All of the above. Wail, be silent, be ashamed, and then wail some more. All right. There's a process through this grief. There's a process through this acceptance of the wrath of God upon your nation. So in verse 1 he says, Wail, O ships of Tarshish. And uh, by the way, that's a term that, that describes the nature of the ship. Not a geographical reference to the city, but a, it's, a, it's a style, it's a, it's a type of ship. These are the largest of the sailing vessels of the, of, uh, the ancient world that could go into the deepest of waters and uh, carry the the maximum amount of cargo. Um, And Tarshish itself was a a Phoenician colony when it comes right down to it. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor. And then verse 2, Be silent, you inhabitants of the coastlands. And then verse 4, Be ashamed, O Sidon. And so we have this chain of imperatives, these commands that are being voiced through the prophet Isaiah, but they're coming from God himself. Wail, be silent, be ashamed, and then wail some more. You get down to verse 6. Pass over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coastlands. And we have a cycle here of of acceptance into the wrath of God. What is it that God is doing? He's not just tearing down Tyre. He's actually devastating the entire culture, the entire um, population base here of these Canaanite peoples. Shows the turbulent nature of Tyre's downfall and the collective dismay by all the lands, peoples, and nations economically connected to the Phoenicians. Look at the geographical references. Once you track all the imperatives, look at the geographical references. And I don't accept uh, Tarshish in terms of ships of Tarshish being a geographical reference, but I do accept it as geographical in verse 6 when they say, Pass over to Tarshish. That's a place. But we have Cyprus, we have Sidon, we have the Nile, we have Egypt, we have. Um, have I missed any in here? There's several. Tarshish in verse six, Tyre again in Egypt in verse five. Whose verse seven? Whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places? All right, this became their mechanism. This, I believe this was their. If they, if they knew what they were doing or if this was their strategy, given that uh, their homeland was assigned to Israel, how they found a, they, they weren't a warlike people. They, they didn't defend themselves by military might. They didn't conquer. They just colonized. They immigrated, all right? They would love uh, certain immigration philosophies that are espoused in our day and age. They would love just to go to different places and set up their own businesses and, and start to influence culture wherever they went, throughout everywhere. They became a colonizing influence. And we'll talk about this as well. All right, But the collective dismay, that's why you have a variety of responses. In some cases it's wailing, in some cases it's silence, in some cases it's shame, in some cases it's more wailing. And I think it goes through a cycle with respect to, uh, with respect to these things. Very turbulent nature of Tyre's downfall. We understand the Phoenicians colonized the Mediterranean and beyond. Kittim, Tarshish, and Carthage, for example. Raw Phoenician colonies. Depending on what you understand, Tarshish is, uh, Tarshish may also be identical with Carthage anyway, and there's theories on that. Great map in the Holman Bible Atlas. You may have maps yourself. But this is what the Phoenicians did. They weren't conquerors like Rome or Persia or Greece. They, they didn't follow the mode like we have in the great prophetic passages of Daniel, whereby you have an em, em, empire that comes in and defeats a previous empire, takes its place, and establishes an empire militarily. They actually spread economically, commercially. They infiltrate, they establish a colony, and they start business dealings with all of these nations. And if someone is going to conquer them, they... Get conquered or they buy them off. They accept defeat and they, they make new business dealerships with a new conqueror. They really don't even care. As the Assyrians come in, as the Babylonians come in, as the Persians come in, as the Greeks come in, as the Romans come in. If they're going to be conquered, well, pay them off and let's make a new contract with our new, with our new occupiers. They're fine with that. Tyre found a way to thrive and thrive and thrive no matter which conqueror came to get them. Like I say, the Holman Bobble Atlas had a pretty neat map, which I really liked. I wasn't sure how it would show up on the screen. And because it's configured like this, with a Mediterranean map down below and then a, an, an inset flyout box that came out from it. And so, figuring that that would be too small, I went ahead and zoomed in. Expanded the, the box you see these are the Phoenician colonies on the coast of the, the coast of Israel, northwest of Israel, with Arvad, with Tripoli, Biblos, Sidon, and Tyre. those are the five leading philistine or not philistine Phoenician cities on the coast of what 's today modern day Lebanon. It was supposed to be israel's. Israel never took it. Israel never conquered it, even today, conflict between Hezbollah and the Jews, as uh, the terrorists living in Lebanon are dedicated to Israel's destruction. As they spread throughout the Mediterranean, they established uh, colonies everywhere. North Africa, like Cyrene, and uh, Leptis Magna, and Carthage, uh, and the islands like Malta, and Sicily, and Sardinia, uh, on uh, the European continent, from Macedonia to Greece to Italy, to Spain, Oftentimes it's thought that uh, Tarshish was Spain, was one of the coasts of Spain, perhaps. There was a a city there named Tartessus that is usually thought of as being Tarshish. Although the Septuagint and the Talmud and um, the Targums and Jerome in the Latin Vulgate, all four of those witnesses believed that biblical Tarshish was Carthage. In North Africa, and that's a pretty strong list of witnesses right there that I would be, I would be reluctant to uh, to dispute. In any event, this was their mode of operation, and this is how they spread. And you can imagine, worldly viewpoint, cosmic viewpoint, economic viewpoint, the uh, the the benefits to diversifying your portfolio if you can spread everything out wide enough and far enough. You can indemnify yourself. You can preserve your uh, investments. You can preserve your identity. You can preserve your culture. All right? If you are not in one place that can get conquered, if you spread out everywhere, then you can ebb and flow with uh, the rise and fall of anything. At least that's the theory. Whoops. Don't do that. i got to click back on that. There we go. So they were colonizers. They were economic colonizers. Okay? As we see in this text, Uh, you were on many waters. It says in verse three, the grain of the Nile, the harvest of the river was her revenue. She was the market of nations. If you know anything about the flooding of the Nile and how fertile the soil was because of the flooding of the Nile, how much grain Egypt produced. Egypt produced more food than, than the world could eat. They produced more food, certainly, than they could eat, and that grain got shipped everywhere. It fed the Roman Empire. Before that, it fed the Greeks. It it would feed. It was a cash crop all right, for the world, but it wasn't Egyptian ships carrying it everywhere. It was Phoenician ships carrying it everywhere. It, the Phoenicians were the middlemen, and they got their cut coming and going. All right, they got their cut every single transaction that was made, and the Phoenicians became the, one of the richest empires ever. Now, eschatologically, this prophecy finds its parallel in the downfall of commercial Babylon from Revelation chapter 18. All right? Eschatologically, this prophecy finds its fulfillment, or it finds its parallel, I should say, in the downfall of commercial Babylon. So many parallels between Old Testament Phoenicia, Old Testament Tyre, and commercial Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. As far as the trade, as far as the uh, pollution of idolatry in every nation on this earth. The exporting of demonism, the exporting of witchcraft, the idolatry that will be spread in the coming tribulation of Israel. Are you familiar with Revelation 18? Are you familiar with the eschatological studies of the tribulation? Are you familiar with the whore of Babylon in chapter 17? And then that's religious Babylon, and then commercial Babylon in the next chapter of chapter 18? That's a ton of study right there, all right? And I'm not going to get into it this morning. But understand that if you want to have a complete and comprehensive um, recognition of God's attitude related to these things, I think it's best if you take Revelation 18 and put it in context with Isaiah 23, with Ezekiel 26, 27, 28, 29. That it's the Phoenicians that represent the uh, the commercial activity of Antichrist. When it comes right down to it, you'll also find when Babylon falls. Let me just real quickly, uh, Revelation 18. I know. I know. I'm going to Ukraine in a few weeks and uh, I'll be teaching Daniel and Revelation. I'm looking forward to that. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And all the nations of 18.3, all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed acts of fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. She didn't just make herself wealthy, she made everybody wealthy for those that took part in her commercial endeavors worldwide. And when she is destroyed, the kings will lament. In verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her... Will weep and lament over her. And here I see this cycle that we had of weep, be silent, or be ashamed, and wail some more. All right? Connections between Isaiah 23 and Revelation 18. They will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city. All right, verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. And it goes on to describe these things. All right, can't do any more on that. Back to Isaiah 23 then. Someday, when we get a chance to teach this verse by verse and item by item, we're going to spend an awful lot of time here On verse 4. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea speaks. The stronghold of the sea speaks, saying... You ever heard the ocean talk? You ever heard the sea speak? Not just the sea, but the stronghold of the sea. And the sea has a message. And the sea is quite a rebuke uh, for the... uh, population that made the sea their their very security, their very uh, income, their very source of identity. They were a sea people. And yet the rebuke that they receive comes from the sea itself. I have neither travailed nor given birth. I have neither brought up young men nor reared virgins. And you can imagine how heartbreaking that would be for Tyre if they view themselves as the offspring uh, of the sea in that capacity. You want to study this more? You've got to study it with respect to Revelation 20 and Revelation 21 and understand that there's actually an angelic component to this. The sea, specifically the stronghold of the sea, speaks a lament. I believe it's a lament that defies understanding. A lot of folks jump through a lot of hoops to convince you that it's not really the sea that's talking, it's really Tyre that's talking. Tyre is the stronghold of the sea. Tyre is the one talking. Why are they talking to themselves? This is a rebuke for them. They wouldn't be communicating their own rebuke. It's the sea itself that is rebuking Tyre. Likewise, the message of not having any daughters, not having any uh, young men or virgins, that defy. even the context here defies that. Verse 7 says, whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places. Tyre had all kinds of bastard children all over the Mediterranean. We just saw them on the map. They had daughters, they had sons, they had colony children everywhere. Tyre wouldn't be voicing something saying, I don't have any children. I have neither brought up young men nor reared virgins. They had brought up all kinds of young men. They had brought up all kinds of virgins. They themselves were the virgin city of Sidon. Which we see in a uh, subsequent. Verse 12, you shall exalt no more, O crushed virgin, daughter of Sidon. Okay, all right. I told you this was going to be tough. <laughs> Trying to teach this chapter in one hour? Goodness. Well, when you start talking about the sea, how the sea gives up the dead that are in them, how in the new heavens and new earth there is no longer any sea, when you start to recognize the sea for what it is as the dimension of satanic activity, the source from when Antichrist arises, You realize there's a lot more to the sea. It is the playground for Leviathan. Prophetically, there is a lot more to understand with respect to the sea than uh, most people even pay any attention. So stay tuned. Someday the Lord may take us into those realms of study. But let's look at Lord Sabaoth. Let's look at their destruction in verses 8 and following. Lord Sabaoth is the agent of Tyre's destruction. Lord Sabaoth. We sing this occasionally, right? In a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same. Okay? A lot of times we sing Lord Sabaoth and we don't understand. It's the Lord God of hosts. This is his battlefield name. This is his name. Uh, uh, He's the Lord of the armies. Uh, Sava is an army. Savioth is the Lord of the armies. Who has planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of all beauty, to despise all the honored of the earth. What is it that this world finds attractive? What is it this world esteems? What do we find attractive? Money and power. All right, what did Tyre have? Money and power. And um, Tyre had money and power to, to share, to spread. It was their stock in trade. Whose merchants were princes. Whose traders were the honored of the earth. They didn't want to be kings. Why would they take the pay cut? They could simply buy the next king. Put him on the throne. And yet, in most cases, they had. they were richer than the kings anyway. That's why they were the bestower of crowns. The Lord of hosts has planned it. Yahweh Sabaoth has planned it to defile the pride of all beauty, to despise all the honored of the earth. Now to defile the pride of all beauty. This too goes into some deep angelic stuff. This talks about Satan and his fall. He was the most beautiful creature ever, and his pride is what led to the fall of Satan. And we find that when God is bringing Tyre to an end, when he's bringing this system to an end, as per the fall of commercial Babylon in Revelation 18. When he's bringing all of this to an end, he is destroying the works of Satan. Okay? Remember, that's what Jesus came to do in his first advent. That's what he's going to do again in his second advent. Destroying the works of Satan. Lord, Sabaoth is the agent of Tyre's destruction. It goes on. Um, Verse uh, 10 says, Overflow your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more restraint. I don't think unbelievers understand the blessings of the restrainer in this day and age. He has stretched his hand out over the sea. He has made the kingdoms tremble. The Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish its strongholds. They didn't escape God's wrath. Just because they planted daughter colonies throughout the, the Mediterranean, God is still bringing an end to every last shred of Canaanite civilization. He has said, you shall exult no more, O crushed virgin, daughter of Sidon. Arise, pass over to Cyprus. Even there you will find no rest. You know, where can you run from God? Where can you flee from his presence? Behold, the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people which was not. There's the illustration. If Assyria brings Babylon low, what's going to happen to these guys? Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is destroyed. Destroyed. So we see Lord Sabaoth as the agent of Tyre's destruction from verse 8 down to verse 14. How much study do we need to put into this? Quite a bit. (laughs) All right. Who has planned this destruction? Maybe one of the biggest things Tyre was ever proud of is all their planning. And they thought they had planned for everything. No one is successful in business for very long without the best kind of planning possible. The Phoenicians were brilliant at it. This market for this, that market for that. They, they were the middleman for all the, the commerce going on. And yet they're going to be undone by the ultimate planner of the universe, the wonderful counselor, the one who needs no assistance in his planning. One who has no counselor outside of himself. And the vocabulary for this is, is fun to look at, and the role of Jesus Christ and his wisdom. This is one of the titles he will assume when he sits on the throne of David. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Who has acted as the counselor of the Lord, we're told? All right, but we have this verb as far as planning is concerned. Who has planned this against Tyre? The Lord of hosts has planned it. So it shows up twice there, once in verse 8 and once in verse 9. I don't know about you, but I love this. I love the fact that I'm not the one that has to come up with a plan. Isn't that great? God's got the plan. God the Father put forth the plan. Jesus Christ is executing the plan. The Holy Spirit is empowering the plan. All I need to do is humble myself and get on board with His plan. Every time I try to create a plan of my own, what's that going to result in? Many of the plans of a man's heart, but it's the counsel of the Lord that will stand, we're told. We're going to get into more of this when we look over to chapter 40. So stay tuned. 17 weeks from now. Plus a couple of weeks. I'll have a couple of off weeks with Ukraine coming up. But in Isaiah chapter 40, when we see all the great things that God has done and we weren't there to help him out, (laughs) right? He created this earth. He's done it all. And he didn't ask for our help, our input, our suggestions, our assistance. Who has measured out the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked out the heavens by the span? Who has calculated the dust of the earth by the measure? Who has weighed the mountains in a balance? Who has weighed the hills on a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him. Are we God's counselor? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Sadly, we try to be. Don't we? Don't we all too often get really in our prayers or in how we conduct our lives? Don't we often help God out? We say, well, here, here, God, here's what, here's what I think you should be doing. And since obviously this is your will, uh, try to have it done by tomorrow. <laughs> hmm. With whom did he consult? And who gave him Understanding who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. See, we learn through the process of learning. God is the eternal I am. God has always been the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. <laughs> you thought that was a earthly expression. Well, it comes from here. Regarded as a speck of the dust on the scales. Okay, well, we'll be there in 17 weeks. Who has planned this destruction? And those that took great pride in their plans, they had plans and backup plans and contingency plans. They had things all spread out. Sidon could be a backup for Tyre. Tyre could be a backup for Sidon. They had all kinds of contingencies. If one particular port is lost, we'll just shift and reallocate over here. Hmm. Well, the ultimate planner is going to get them. And we understand historically, Phoenician colonies formed the final places of refuge for Canaanites, destined for destruction. God allotted them for destruction. He lauded the Canaanites to come to an end. Joshua failed. Does that thwart the plan of God? All right. Does that thwart the plan of God? He causes the rise and fall of kingdoms. The boundaries of their habitation. Their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God is in absolute control. Isaiah 23.11 And these are principles I think that we ought to be aware of. That we ought to be um, humble Before. Particularly if we think that, oh, well, that would never happen to us, right? That perhaps a day will come and occupants of this land would, the idea of America or Texas or anything would be just as alien as as us thinking about this as as if it was, you know, the Comanche days. How long has it been since this was Comanche territory? How often do we think about this as Comanche territory? And all the six flags over Texas and whatever. When's the next flag on the way? God's in charge of that too. He will not be thwarted. He will absolutely not be thwarted. Now, some issues here. Verse 8. The bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. Is this what God designed? Is this the Tower of Babel mentality here? whereby God has divided the earth and established boundaries, including language, including uh, borders, including kings. Remember, God installs kings, God removes kings. God has designed humanity to fall under tribes and clans and families with borders and languages. He created languages at Babel in order to force those divisions. Instead, what we have are international corporate endeavors. Sometimes they're referred to as thalassocracies. Are you familiar with that term? Thalassa meaning sea, kratos meaning power. These are sea powers, and they've existed here and there throughout human history. And it's remarkable how Satan uses them, and the way that he uses them. They're called thalassocracies or sea powers. A big one in the, the Middle Ages was uh, uh, Venice, Venice and Genoa, uh, Genoa, and the the different uh, republics in the Middle Ages that went all the way to China and back, setting up their uh, colonies. The uh, uh, Hong Kong and Macau became colonies of the Portuguese, for example, and the English and the Dutch. The the Dutch, they were everywhere. The East India Company, the West India Company, setting up colonies all around the world. Well, the Phoenicians were the first trailblazers on this this, uh, process. Merchant princes claiming sovereignty through economic means, not through, obviously, normal means or the laws of divine establishment, we would say. All right. But bestowing crowns as if we're the ones in charge. The bestower of crowns. Wait a minute. My Bible says God bestows the crowns. That that he installs kings, he removes kings. He sets over them the basest of men, we're told, in Daniel chapter 4. But the arrogance of these folks to be the kingmakers, to be the power behind the throne, it's a reflection of Satan's own activity as the power behind the throne. This trade merchant princes and honored traders span all national boundaries. And this trade created political sovereignty is reminiscent of the fall of Satan. And it underlies the prophetic messages against Satan that are that are contained within messages to Tyre. <laughs> now you're getting into some deep stuff. When you read uh, when you read Ezekiel twenty eight, who's who's he talking to? Is he talking to Satan or is he talking to a, a king of Tyre? Both. You ever done that study? The king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre? Very quickly, I say that a lot. Um, Ezekiel 28. Hold your finger in Isaiah 22. Let's get over to Ezekiel. In case I run out of time, this prophecy of Isaiah 23 has never happened in human history. It is unfulfilled as of 2015 A.D. All right? Now they've had several destructions. They've had, uh, they've had uh, you know the, the, the Greeks and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Romans. They've been conquered again and again and again and again. The Arabs conquered them. The Crusaders conquered them. Been, uh, Tyre has been conquered again and again and again and again. But the fulfillment of Isaiah 23 is, is still eschatological, as in everything we've been seeing from chapter 13 to chapter 23, from Babylon to Edom to Philistia to the, uh, all of these oracles. All of these oracles are tribulational, eschatological for their fulfillment. All right, so there's the giveaway. Uh, Ezekiel 28, verse 2, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, you got that? The leader of Tyre. And then in verse 12, Son of Man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Two messages, two different terms. The first one's a human being, the second one is Satan. This is Satan in view here in verses twelve and following. He's the power behind the throne. He had the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Remember the beauty? That's what we're looking at in Isaiah 23 is the beauty. God's going to destroy that beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Now who was in Eden? Adam, Eve, and a serpent, right? (laughs) So we're pretty, we can narrow down our our, uh, context here. He's not rebuking Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve aren't the king of Tyre. But Satan, all right, the power behind the throne the king behind the, the ruler from verse 2. Every precious stone was recovering the ruby, the topaz, the diamond. Look at these gems. He's actually decked out like a high priest. The gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created, they were prepared. Again, this can't be a human being. We aren't created. We're born. Only Adam and Eve were created human beings. But the angels were created beings. Satan was a created being. And he was created with these gems and these jewels and the workmanship of his settings and sockets. You were the Messiah cherub. You were the Messiah cherub, the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. Remember when God built the replica of a temple for his Jewish people, There were cherubs in the artwork of that holy place. Cherubs were designed to overshadow the Ark of the Covenant. They were designed to overshadow the the Shekinah glory of the holiness of Yahweh Elohim. Well, Satan likewise was a cherub designed to cover, designed to overshadow the very glory of God and the angel stewardship. You were in the midst of the... I placed you there. You were in the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Sinless and perfect and blameless until unrighteousness was found in him. This is describing the original fall of Satan. And look what this was produced through. By the abundance of your trade, uh oh. Okay? You were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Now, what was this trade about? Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground and I put you before kings. Plural. Who was he trading with? Satan defiled his sanctuaries. And he did so with the kings of the angelic earth. He wasn't a king. He was a priest. But he made himself a king. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. You ever wonder why Jesus went so berserk in the temple when he saw the money changers? Why he started flipping over tables and whipping them with a cord? And What were they doing? The human beings in the Jewish temple were replicating the fall, the original fall of Satan, the original money changer the original Prince of Tyre. Oh, there's so much in this. So much in this. But this is what we have today. We've got these global conglomerates. We've got these international corporations, and they are all over the world. And are they subject to the sovereignty of nations? Or do they pick and choose? We like this nation's tax haven status. We like this nation uh, th- for this. We like this nation for that. We like this nation for these. All these other things. And they play every nation against every other nation. And they are subject to all of them, but really they're subject to none of them. They play them all against one another and they create their own rules. And they, they, they do all of this in violation of the Tower of Babel from Genesis chapter 11. All right. It will be destroyed. It will be destroyed when commercial Babylon falls in the Battle of Armageddon. Now, for the hardest part of the chapter, in eight minutes. So I rushed through that early stuff so we made sure we had time to get here. Verses 15 through 18. By the way, You have through the Bible notes in the back. Yeah. It says uh, Isaiah 23 verses 1 through 25. Clearly that's a typo. It should be verses 1 through 18. I meant to email you about that. That's been a typo in the through the Bible notebook for 12 years now or longer. All right. Verses 15 through 18. Seventy years have been decreed. Seventy years. Oh my goodness. Does this connect to anything? 15 through 18. All right. Now in that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years. Like the days of one king. 70 years. Huh. One king reigns 70 years? How often does that happen? David reigned 40. Even Manasseh only reigned 52. What king reigns for 70 years? None in the Old Testament, okay? Ah, but there will be some coming up when the youth die a hundred. And when Gentile kings start to reign, it won't be unusual for a Gentile king to reign 70 years. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Do you know that song? The song of the harlot. Doug, do you know that song? No, I don't recommend it. But it's here, right? Verse 16. Take your harp... Walk about the city, O forgotten harlot. Okay, You can advertise with the harp. They'll hear the music and they'll think, Aha, you know, that's not the ice cream truck. That's, that's the strange woman Proverbs warned me about. And that's the music that says, Ha, that's how I find her. Take your harp. Walk about the city, O forgotten harlot. Pluck the strings skillfully. Sing many songs. That you may be remembered. Ah, she's going to be back in business after 70 years. All right. She's been retired. She's been out of business for 70 years and forgotten. But at the end of 70 years, it will happen that, as it says in the Song of the Harlot, she's back in business, plucking the strings that you may be remembered. And it will come about at the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre and she will go back to her harlot's wages. Ooh, that sounds weird. I thought the Lord visited Tyre and put her out of business. He visited Tyre and destroyed the whole place. And and they're lamenting this in chapter 23. They're out of business, they're done, they're gone. Why are they going to resume business after 70 years? And he allows it. He visits them. And she will go back to her harlot's wages and will play the harlot with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. You know, there's so many misconceptions about what the millennium is going to be. Just because the millennium begins with all believers on the planet. Just because the millennium begins with every the sheep and goat judgment and every unbeliever is sent to hell and there are nothing but believers on the planet on Inauguration Day when Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of David. But 70 years later, 70 years later, what's the spiritual condition of the next generation? What's the spiritual condition of the generation after that? The children that are born after Armageddon. And why are the nations being permitted to uh, resume this course? Her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord. Oh my goodness. Sanctified fees, prostitution fees. It will not be stored up or hoarded, but her gain, in other words, instead of making herself rich through this harlotry, her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. Wow. There's some stuff to study. Now, let me just give you some clues as we have to wrap this up tie it together. Jerusalem also has a 70-year prophecy. And Jeremiah is going to speak about that. It's a captivity. Jerusalem also received a 70-year prophecy. And we'll learn that because we'll be in Jeremiah after Isaiah. Tyre is given a 70-year prophecy, and so this causes people to put them all together. <laughs> well, that's 70 years. That's 70 years. It's got to be the same, right? That's a terrible hermeneutic, <laughs> okay? The mention of Tyre in Genesis 25 leads many to coincide the 70-year spans. I do not coincide the 70-year spans. This was not fulfilled he brought Israel back from their exile in 70 years, but he didn't visit Tyre in the sev- after 70 years and cause them to resume their harlotry. In fact, Tyre didn't ever stop their harlotry during the time of Israel's captivity. Tyre was still engaged in their harlotry while Israel was in their captivity because that's the time frame when Ezekiel was doing his messages. Alright. No, I do not coincide these time spans. This 70 year span is at the beginning of the millennium. The first 70 years of the millennium. Tyre's 70 year span will conclude with a personal visit by Jesus Christ. I believe the king of Israel will make a state visit to Tyre on the 70th anniversary of his installation as the millennial king of David. Tyre will return to her harlot's wages. They're going to be permitted. You know, Jesus rules with a rod of iron, but he's only ruling Israel. All the Gentiles have their kings. And they're starting to uh, reinstitute this international trade. And Jesus permits it. He permits it. But he also demands that he's the one that's going to lay claim to their prophets as any conquering king has the right to do. I believe we have a geopolitical illustration of Proverbs 13.22 and and even a prophetic anticipation of Revelation 22.11. Revelation 22.11 bothers a lot of people. I'm going to have to close with this. Because it says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Why does God permit the unrighteous to be unrighteous? Why does Jesus Christ command Tyre to resume her harlotry occupation? Well, he's got a purpose for it. He will employ it. He will use it. He will profit from it. Why does he allow the wicked to get filthy rich? (laughs) Where'd that expression come from anyway? Filthy rich. Okay. Well. Proverbs 13, 22. Did I say I was going to close with Revelation? Let's close with Proverbs. Oh my, now I'm already a minute over. Proverbs 13. Does it bother you if the wicked are getting rich? Well, what are they going to do with it? And where does it go when they die? And who are they saving it up for? A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Oh. The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. There are occasions whereby God allows the wicked to get all kinds of rich. And then he uses those resources to bless the righteous. To bless his children. Okay? There's more. I'm just out of time. All right. well, Lord willing, rapture pending. We'll be back next week for chapter 24. Chapter 24 begins the apocalyptic portion of the book. 24, 25, 26, 27. It's like the book of Revelation in miniature in four chapters of Isaiah. Looks forward to the end times. Looks forward to uh, eschatological issues, even in a greater detail than what we've had in 13 through 23. Okay? Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this study. And Father, you've given us so much. Like we're drinking from a fire hose this morning, Father. There's there's just uh, a ton of material. But I thank you for the reminder that you're the one with the plan. You've planned it. You bring it about. And Father, it's just a, a blessing and a delight. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for our eternal life in Him. Thank you, Father, for... Um, the salvation that you've offered to each one of us. I thank you for the, the blessings that we have as being saved ones to then become disciples, living and abiding in the Word of God, studying to show ourselves approved, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And day by day, moment by moment, we learn a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept. Father, I pray that on this day we will have learned just a little bit more, a little nugget, a little detail, A little thing to add to what we've already learned and we'll come back again to learn a little bit more. Thank you for being so faithful, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.